組織の幹部だ250万あとは契約を履行した時その音が渡す殺し屋ナンバー3にランクされている君の腕次第だ Ladies, gentlemen, and those who do not believe in a gender binary, do not adjust your set. This is, in fact, Patrick Rapole, the former host of Directors Club, back、uh, to fulfill an old debt. Now, I'm going to have to give you a little bit of history here, so stay with me. And if you're worried that the asshole with the loud mouth、uh, who, who mutters a lot、uh, is back, this is a limited time, one time special sort of episode. Uh, that I have returned for. Let me set this up. Way back in, it was either 2013 or 2014, I think probably 2013,、uh, I had a friend who was going to be the lead actor in a film that was an independent film that was trying to get funding on、uh, Kickstarter. And I was trying to help them out, get the, get the movie kickstarted. And I put out a challenge to all the listeners of Directors Club, which is if you donate $50 or more to this Kickstarter, You can give me the topic of a bonus episode, and I will do a bonus, any bonus episode on any topic you choose. So if you go back on the Director's Club feed, you're going to find some of those bonus episodes. I don't think they're necessarily designated as being part of this Kickstarter thing, but they're in there. Like I, I reviewed the two Cape Fear movies. I,、uh, I went back and rewatched a bunch of movies that I didn't like with Bill Ackerman. I sat down with Jim and. Uh, we did some stuff. So I, I, I want to say like four or five people donated $50. And one of those people was Tyler Foster, who you might remember from the Quentin Tarantino episode、um, way back when. And Tyler Foster wanted me to do a Director's Club episode on Sage and Suzuki. And I said yes. And then I quit the podcast and never talked to him again. Was, I sort of, I sort of made a promise and then ghosted. <laughs> and I want to say in the past five to four years,、um, we've talked on and off about like, Oh, that's right. I still owe you that bonus episode.、Um, by the way, the film in question is called most likely. Uh, it did end up getting funded and it got made. It's on Amazon Prime. My music is in it. Jim did a bunch of music,、uh, for the movie. So,、uh, if you, if you are curious about them, and it, it only, so I had like five people donate $50 and it made its goal by like 40 bucks. So, like, it definitely exists because of Director's Club and I'm very proud of that. So, if you're curious about the movie that this whole sequence of events wrought, look up most likely. Uh, on Amazon Prime. At any rate,、uh, this year,、um, in my own personal life, I've just sort of been watching a bunch of Asian films and I realized, oh, that's right. I had that bonus episode, that Sajin Suzuki bonus episode. I still owe Tyler Foster. So I contacted him and over the past like nine months, we've slowly 
tried to get together to record uh, this, and and we've delayed it and delayed it and delayed it and moved times and moved times and troubleshot, and we're finally here. Tyler, how are you doing? I'm great. Even even this last like hour has been a struggle, but. The world doesn't want us to talk about Seijin Suzuki, but you know what I say? Fuck the world. The wor- <laughs> What has the world done for us lately? Right. That's, that's something I was thinking about earlier is like uh, I was thinking about, um, you know, listening to your other podcast, the uh, Popcorn Dinner, and I was like, it's every every month that goes by in the world that we're currently living in just feels like a million years. So in my head... I have no distinction of how long ago I was listening to your episodes of Directors Club and listening to that podcast. That could have been sometime this year, and I, it's just like uh, it feels like a million years ago. I, it really the 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 uh, time expansion, the dilation. Would it be dilation? Yeah, the time dilation of the current uh, American sort of political climate is a real fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it really sucks. Um, absolutely. Uh, I can't, I don't even remember when we were doing popcorn supper. I don't think those episodes exist on the internet anywhere either. So like <laughs> we can't, I can't even go online and check. Um, but I do know that I went online, like I committed wholesale. I happened to have a job where I was making more money than I previously did. And I had like, I had $400 in my bank account, which was unheard of. And I said, you know what, this, this, I, I saw the money and I had my instinct whenever I see money, which is, oh, I'll fix you. I'll get rid of you real quick. <laughs> and I bought the two Aero box sets of early Seijin Suzuki and I bought some other Seijin Suzuki movies. And I, I, once I, like, once I spent 120 bucks on Seijin Suzuki Blu-rays, I, then I was like, okay, now I can't fuck around. I have to record this episode. So we're going to go over the work of Seijin Suzuki, um, very interesting uh, director from the Japanese New Wave, um, sort of unknown in America during his time. His films weren't really released over here, um, I don't believe. While you know, they he he worked primarily in the fifties and sixties. Uh, I think it wasn't until like the mid eighties that uh, America started getting retrospectives and stuff, and people started rediscovering uh, what an interesting director he was. Uh, mostly known for crime films, very surreal, violent, uh, s- uh, very sexual, uh, just bizarre uh, Yakuza movies uh, like uh, Tokyo Drifter, Branded to Kill. Um, but his career went all over the place. So we're going to be talking about that. I am curious, Tyler, first of all, um, what what was it about Seijin Suzuki that made you want to spend $50 to make me talk about him. That's the thing that I was, and I was thinking about that too, because it's like back when I, when I wanted director's club to do Seijin Suzuki, I hadn't really seen that many of his movies. I'd probably seen like five or six of his movies maybe. And uh, so I, I I mean, I, I guess I just thought this is, this is a director that has something that's interesting in some way. And then I just wanted, wanted you guys to talk about it. Um, I didn't really have a particular hook as to what I found most interesting about Suzuki. Um, when I was thinking about, you know, recording this and I was watching the stuff, I do feel like his career can be broken up into three 
pretty distinct periods because there's the first part, like he was a director for hire. And so there's this um, period in the, in the like late fifties, early sixties where he's mostly just doing the kind of things they assigned to him at this uh, Japanese, this uh, major Japanese film company, Nikatsu. And so he's doing, you know, work for hire. He's being assigned these youth pictures um, that are about like teen, teen drama, teen melodrama, and stuff like that. And then uh, later they assign him, you know, yakuza pictures and samurai movies and stuff that will go on. Um, they're the the B movie half of Double Bills. So they have um, the company has like prestige directors, and they. Have an a, they have an A picture, and then Suzuki makes this job for hire B picture that will go on the second half of the double bill. And uh, at a certain point during the like the mid '60s, early '60s, like he starts to get antsy and make more artistic movies, like or he starts to sneak in his own proclivities into the movies that he's making. And then um, in the late '60s, he makes Branded to Kill. Um, the, the legend is that they fired him immediately, but, uh, I guess they fired him like several months later. Um, so it wasn't quite like that he pissed them off so much that they had to get rid of him, but he did get fired and then he stopped working for a little while and then he made a few more pictures all the way up until like 2003 or 2006 or something. Um, um, and, and I think those are generally a little bit more pure sensibility whatever his sensibility is, he gets really into it. Like, uh, there's this trilogy of movies that I haven't seen in the later period called the Taisho trilogy. And those, I, I, I went to a retrospective when they were touring his films on 35 millimeter and I was just too exhausted to, uh, stay awake, but it had a, it, like the I, the, I saw part of the first one and it was very poetic and not, not like the movies that he made that we're going to talk about are very, like uh they have a pop sensibility they really crackle absolutely and so yeah so like eventually he got to really like spread his wings but i i think the most interesting period is this period in the middle that we're talking about where it's like he's he's getting these jobs that the studio doesn't really care about and he's starting to push back on the things that he is asked to do or try to expand the horizons a little bit and i just find to me, if the, we're going to talk about him, that's the thing that I find most interesting because I don't really think of a lot of American directors that get jobs that they're not invested in, but they have their own passion and they sort of imprint it onto the work. I feel like when you when you have job for hire directors in America, they just kind of do what is asked of them. I think there's a there there's a certain strain of B movie. Director, I, I couldn't, I'm not, I don't have like all the biographical information about directors like uh, Anthony Mann or mm-hmm. um, uh, Samuel Fuller or stuff like that. But I think like in the 50s, there was a, like a kind of director who did sort of operate in a se- similar sense as Seijin Suzuki, not making films as wild as Seijin Suzuki made. There is, I don't think there, really is an American equivalent to Branded to Kill, or at least not one that jumps to mind. But like I do think Samuel Fuller is probably a pretty good comparison though. But I think I but I think if I if I remember the Samuel Fuller episode at Directors Club that I did correctly, <laughs> I believe a lot of Samuel Fuller's work was independently produced, 
which mm. makes which puts it in a sort of a different world. Um, Nakatsu, mm-hmm. the the studio in which he spent most of his career with and will forever be associated with, um, like I I don't have a oh I should say this right up front, which is that I'm not an expert on Japanese cinema. I'm not an expert on Japanese history. I'm not an expert <laughs> on the Japanese new wave in particular, and I'm not. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call myself particularly knowledgeable even of Japanese culture, you know, like I've seen several films, television shows, you know, uh, video games. I've consumed (laughs) media from Japan my whole life, but I, I'm not here. I'm not going to be the guy, unfortunately, who can like really put all this into a proper context. So if you're like coming to this episode, hoping to get this like lesson, about Nikatsu and the Japanese film industry and Seijin Suzuki and all that. Uh, maybe Tyler can provide that, but I absolutely can't. <laughs> no, no, this is going to be a great podcast because neither of us know what we're talking about. All right. Well, then this is, again, a little bit more classic Directors Club because I think when Directors <laughs> Club started, me and Jim, the whole thing was we didn't, we were very enthusiastic about film, but we didn't really know shit about it. Uh, so <laughs> it was a lot of us discovering directors and stuff like that. So. That's mm-hmm. what's going to be like this. So I can only, when I talk about Nakatsu, they're a B-movie studio. They cranked out movies. They had a set schedule, which was two two weeks of pre-production, three weeks of shooting, two weeks of post-production. They released, I think, like two movies a week. Uh, so they released about 100 movies a year or something along those lines. Uh, this is the kind of studio that they were. So... I think of them, and again, this may be completely off base, but like I kind of think of them somewhere uh, along the lines of like an AIP or something like that, American International Pictures. Uh, I can, I can. That seems like the. Diff- I, I would agree with that. With based on what I know, I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, the the big difference is Nikatsu was a, like a star based studio. In a way that American International Pictures never maintained, like, American International made their name off sensational marketing and posters and titles and, you know, like, Roger Corman, like, cranking out super cheap movies in really inventive ways. Like, American International, a lot of future movie stars passed through their gates, but they didn't, they never marketed a movie as like, this is a Jack Nicholson movie, because no one knew who the hell Jack Nicholson was when he was in AIP movies, and... And that way, Nikatsu was different because Nikatsu was very much like a uh, very classic Hollywood. Here, like you would, th- I don't know, I more like 30s Hollywood, where it's like, here's the Betty Davis picture that's coming out this week. Here's the Betty Davis picture that's coming out next month. Here's the one that's coming out after that. And they assign a director a script and they assign the script an actor. And the whole idea is like, well, this is, you know, like Tokyo Drifter is a movie that was used to sell a pop song. And like, they're very. Uh, old-fashioned in a way that AIP isn't, but, like, in terms of budgets, in terms of uh, sort of uh, the speed of production and everything, I think sort of, like, independent films in the 50s is a good... uh, Independent American films uh, are sort of a good counterpoint. Um, I do want to talk... One of the the, uh, Suzuki's that I watched, um, Arrow also put out these uh, sets that are called Nikatsu Diamond Guys, um, that was the nickname for their stars. So, like, uh, this guy that's in a lot of Suzuki's movies, Joe Shishido, who I really enjoy, um, <laughs> he's, one of the, he's one of their diamond guys. 
man. Okay, we're going to talk about Joe Shishido in a second because Joe Shishido is a boy. That Okay, he's a great match for <laughs> Suzuki, but that comes a little later in the career. I think the only way we're going to be able to get through all of this is if we sort of go chronologically. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're... So for a long time, a lot of Suzuki's work, the only work that was really available in America was the cherry-picked sort of, quote-unquote, interesting years where he started to be more subversive and sneak weird stuff into it. Criterion Mm -hmm. released Tokyo Drifter. They released Branded to Kill, Youth of the Beast, uh, Gates of Flesh, Fighting Elegy. These are the films that sort of art house audiences began to know and revere Seijin Suzuki for, and... That they are the films that sort of came after a long period of him cranking out B movies, and I think these mm-hmm. Arrow box sets, the thing, they 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 might not be full of great films, but they the thing that makes them valuable is that they do provide context for those films, like where Suzuki ended up, because he is not the Seijin Suzuki of of the like mid sixties in these late fifties uh, sort of B movies, um. So, Eight Hours of Terror is, I think, the earliest of uh, earliest released Seijin Suzuki film that's commercially available in America. I could com- that could be completely wrong, but that is, I believe, the case. And it is basically, uh, it's from 1957. It's basically Stagecoach. Hmm. Um, so it's so so it's um. So it's about this bus that is traveling like through this mountainous, uh, dangerous Japanese countryside. Uh, it's a place with a lot of bandits. It's a place with it's you know the way that the stagecoach has to go through the American West, and that's dangerous uh, because of Native Americans. Because stagecoach was a movie from the '30s, so you know um, <laughs> it, it was it was colonialist as all fuck. Uh, so eight hours of terror is a contemporary film. It takes place in the fifties, obviously being on a bus instead of a horse drawn carriage. So that is more actual bandits. I think there's, there's like a bank robber on the run. There is a mysterious figure on the bus who ends up sort of saving everybody. And he's sort of the Ringo kid. Um, and there's this sort of, uh, I prostitute, I want to say, I, mm-hmm. The other thing about setting up this episode is that because we, for months and months, we've been trying to figure out when we're going to record it, the the preparation for this episode has been spread across like five months. So, like my memory of a lot of these movies, these early films, is not great. But um, there's also there's also um, like a like a corporate executive who doesn't want to get himself like doesn't want to. He looks down on everybody else on the bus. Um, one of the other Nikatsu guys, Diamond guys, which unfortunately I don't know, I don't remember his name, but um, he's on the bus and he's like, he's just sort of a straight shooter. Like it's at some point he he tries to lead everybody in a in a Russian, like a Russian folk song to like calm everybody's nerves. Um, and uh, there's a there's a shifty businessman who's trying to sell his lingerie. Um, if there's anything that is like, I I, I think that. Suzuki is very good at, at at setting up distinct characters, so I think that uh, Eight Hours of Terror is a good example of that. Yeah, it has that it has that feeling of stagecoach or like speed or taking of the Pelham one two three that that sort of film where you get sort of this cross section of Japanese society 
represented through all the people who are on this bus in this situation. At one point, you know, it becomes a hostage situation with these uh, bank robbers who are on the run. And um, I th- the things I find interesting about it is that it is comical in a way that I associate with later Suzuki movies. It has a weird sense of humor where the danger is very real and the violence is really real and it's not a silly, goofy movie, but there are moments that are very silly and goofy. Um, mm-hmm. It has it has sort of the tonal whiplash that you would associate with later Suzuki yeah, movies. Like it, it has, at, one point, at one point, there's this woman on the bus who, she has a baby and uh, she decides to, like, she's depressed because her husband is has left or is dead or something. And uh, so she jumps off a bridge with the baby and then the, running in the background of this movie is this uh, this guy who came back from the war, uh, and then he he freaked out when he found out that his wife that he had left had gotten a new husband, and he 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 murdered them in a like a fit of rage. Um, so he's he's under arrest on the bus, but um, because he was a wartime doctor, uh, they uncuff him so that he can help save the baby. And that's this thing that's going on in the background of this movie that also has this wacky lingerie salesman who's like bumbling around and doing goofy comedy stuff. And there's like an early scene where they, there's like crazy musical saws and just like music as they, as they're like, is is this haunted? Is there a ghost? Like it's, it's kind of all over the place. And, uh, it's, it's very cheap. It's very cheap looking. I mean, all, all of Sage and Suzuki's quorum films, probably every film he ever made, was very cheap, but he found ways to make them look spectacular later, whereas this does not, um, you know, it, it's kind of effective in its overcrowded frames and just, like, really packed uh, sort of compositions, but it's it doesn't have the sort of uh, style that you would associate with Sage and Suzuki, but I do think it is interesting in that it is it's it's sort of it has that thing that i come back to with sage and suzuki which is and ultimately i'm gonna you know uh come to the conclusion that like i'm not a big fan of sage and suzuki and a lot of times it's just i don't know how to take his movies i sit (laughs) and i watch them and i just don't it's like I'll, i'll often be sitting and watching them and not not I like it's just they don't register because they're so there's there's something aloof about uh him as a filmmaker um and it kind of has a little bit of that even though it's a very early film of his um uh, things that i think that um eight hours of terror that you would you would look at eight hours of terror and see things from other stage and suzuki movies or roots of his style i mean i do think that he was um Politically progressive, I think you see a lot of that in his other movies, and there's a little of that here, where there's the, you know, you mentioned the uh, prostitute, like there's the, and they have these bank robbers that 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 siege the bus at some point, and um, she finds this crafty way to get rid of one of them, and then after that they find out that she was a prostitute, and all the people on the bus like sort of are sort of ashamed that she's this, she she she. Um, she works on the um, American base. Like, that's a political, you know... It, I, the Japanese were not happy with the Americans, obviously, so... But, like, uh, the, the, I think the, the... Like, Suzuki's loyalty sides with her, that she did something good for the people on the bus, and uh, that they should respect her more than they're respecting her. Or, um, 
uh, what was the other thing? And I can't remember, but there's the, like, uh, there's little hints of that in there. And then, um, and that also, that also is just straight out of stagecoach. Like that mm. is, uh, Ringo and, uh, Dallas is the name of the prostitute in that, like, that that is that like I think um, the other thing about Suzuki we should mention is that he didn't write any of his scripts. He ha- you know he shaped them in some way or another. He would change things as he needed to in making the film, but he did not really originate. I don't know if he originated any of his work. Um, so like I think whoever wrote this movie was definitely just looking at John Ford's stagecoach and being like, all right, we can, I, <laughs> we can repurpose this for uh bad country, Jap- like bad Japanese country roads. Mm. Uh, another thing that I was, you know, I mentioned before the distinct characters, I think you can pretty easily, you know, tell these people apart uh, in terms of um, their attitude and their behavior and things like that. And uh, like one of the, like one of the most striking things, that I like about Seijin Suzuki is the way that he moves his camera. I mean, you mentioned how his movies are generally very cheap, but he has this way of, of bringing like three dimensions to the things that he has. Like mm-hmm. uh, there's a shot in this movie a little later called a voice without a shadow where he's, I mean, it's an apartment set. It's probably on a studio lot. He's only got three apartments, but because he just by panning from one end of this set to the other, um, like fluidly and and putting business going on in each apartment, it feels more real than it might have looked if they sh- if he had shot it differently. And there's a little bit he does a little bit of that with the bus, where um, there's enough room where you can see where people are sitting in each seat and uh, the little dramas that they're having going on in between them. And so that's another thing that I think you can see a little bit of going on in this movie. For sure. I think any any filmmaker making a movie set in a really claustrophobic location like a bus is going to be looking for ways uh, to keep things interesting. And uh, that's definitely one of the things going on in uh, this. Um, so we, me and you saw some different movies. So I'm just going to go through <laughs> his filmography. <laughs> I'm going to ask if you – did you see uh, Underworld Beauty? I did see Underworld Beauty, and that's another thing that I think is really interesting about Seijin Suzuki is that, um, uh, you know, he has really striking female characters that I think are very memorable and wide-ranging. You know, some of them are horrible villains, and some of them are are sort of uh, innocent heroes, and I think that he's got a really good, like... You know, if you're looking at these movies in, you know, 2018 and wondering if they're, you know, the portrayal of women or some of their politics have aged poorly, I think they've actually aged really well. Underworld Beauty has a really great performance by its lead actress. She's very, like, there's this, like, uh, she's really, she has a great mix of vulnerability and and hard edge. There's a great scene that I remember, um, even though I haven't seen it, like, I saw it years and years ago, and I still remember how good she was at playing drunk at one point. Like uh, there's a, there's a funeral scene and she's mad at the person who's dead, I think. And she's like, she's drunk and she's ranting and it's really funny. And uh, so that's, that's mostly what I remember about underworld beauty. But, and it's, it's more in the crime. uh, Yeah. More in the crime. crime. I watched it for uh, more November. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've read it is yeah. More like a noir film. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's night. That's also that. So eight hours of terror is 1957. Underworld beauty is 1958. Another 1958 film he made was the boy who came back, which is one of his youth pictures. Um, I did not see that one. So this is so Arrow when they released the box sets of his early films, they sort of divided the early films up into crime movies and youth films, and there is some overlap uh, in both. But generally, um, this is a very it's about a social worker and a kid who's coming back from whatever the Japanese version of juvie is, and it's very generic. It's very much just like delinquent kid doesn't think the world will understand him. And this one woman thinks that, you know, she's new to being a social worker. So she doesn't have proper boundaries. I was, <laughs> I, my, my partner is a social worker and I was watching this and I was explaining the story uh, to them. And they were like, this is, this is, this is, you are bad at your job. This is really not <laughs> what you should be doing. So it's all about like this social worker getting all invested in his life and everything. Um, it's the thing I would say that makes it notable in Suzuki's filmography, at least in the films that I've seen, is that it's extremely earnest. It is, there's basically nothing subversive about this film. Um, mm-hmm. there's nothing really strange about it. It's, and it's like honestly, like that earnestness is the thing that is lacking in a lot of this, his stuff, and a lot of what makes me sort of bounce off uh, some of his films is a lack of earnestness. So, like, I did enjoy the boy who came back as just a very generic sort of dramatic film. That the other thing that is, and this is uh, this is true of a lot of foreign cinema compared to American cinema, is that American cinema of the fifties was very much. They only shot on studios. There was very little location photography unless it was a Western or something like that. Um, And there's very little urban location photography in American film uh, until you get into like the mid to late 60s and New Hollywood and stuff like that. And I think part of that is technology of cameras and film stocks being faster and they're allowed to shoot under – you know, more realistic lighting conditions. And then part of that is also just the, the, uh, like permits and getting a whole, you know, huge crews and actors and everyone out somewhere on location could be difficult, uh, because America is just a really big, huge place. And if it is in LA, uh, then it's probably not worth them going out to do it at least in that Mm -hmm. period of time. Uh, that's not true of a lot of foreign cinema, and that's certainly not true of Japanese cinema. A lot of Seijin Suzuki's films were sought on sound stages, but uh, The Boy Who Came Back is an example of like the kind of stunning uh, production value you can get when you're just able to shoot around an actual city. Uh, and <laughs> it, it looks great. Like, it's really, I mean, part of it's just Arrow in these box sets did really good restoration work and everything, but like, um, it's a really good looking movie and it's be and, and being this social drama, you know, it being grounded in real environments helps lift it up a lot. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. You don't need to run out and go see the boy who came back. Um, though there is like one fight scene in it. That's kind of brutal in a way that's like, okay, this reminds me of something that might've taken place in like fighting elegy or something like that. 
Uh, mm-hmm. But but as far as just like it can be easy to forget, especially if you're someone who's only seen like the Criterion Suzuki that are mostly from his later period, and <clears throat> it can be easy to forget to like actually. He was a guy with a job, and his job was to make movies, and a lot of the time he just did his job and shut up. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> The Boy Who Came Back is one of those things. And I think when when we talk about in cinema, when we talk about the sort of maverick filmmakers who, you know, broke all the rules and stuff like that, uh, you it's important to have, like, context for the stakes of doing so, and... Obviously, Seijin Suzuki, like part of, I think part of why he's so beloved is because of what he represents as far as taking on studio systems, taking on, you know, generic, dull, uh, mainstream filmmaking. You know, he not only got fired for making Branded to Kill, but he sued the studio for wrongful termination and then he got blacklisted and he basically never made another feature film for another like 10 years. Uh, he sort of just moved to commercials after that. And I think that story is very attractive the, to people, the people who fight the system, uh, the artists who have a vision and they follow that vision at all costs. And it's, mm-hmm. in, I think an important part of Seijin Suzuki's story is that part came because he spent 10 years making these kinds of movies, like making four or five of these movies a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so more so than the actual film itself, that's why I sort of appreciated going back and watching some of these old movies. Right. Now there was an Eclipse box. Wait, hold on. Let me let me double check, make sure I'm not skipping anything. I did. There is Voice Without a Shadow, which is also 1958, which you mentioned. Well, so I know you've yeah, seen that. Voice Without a Shadow. I thought that was pretty good. I mean, it's a, it's one of those. He made a couple of movies. You're going to talk about. You come to the other one, but Voice Without a Shadow is one of those ones that just has a really great hook. And then the funny thing is that the movie's about something entirely different. But uh, the hook is that um, there's this uh, telephone operator. She she you know runs the switchboard and um, she calls the wrong number and. The wrong number happens to go to this like this store that is being robbed and someone is being murdered in it. And the murderer picks up the phone and like laughs at her. And then uh, and she remembers this uh, when she reads the paper that there was a murder because she did this. She called. She knows what wrong number she called. And um, three years later, she's at home and she hears the same laugh. And so she knows that the the person who committed that murder is in her house. And then the movie actually turns out to be an entirely different mystery, but uh, it's one of his better, uh, you know, pulpy sort of like, it's generally straightforward. There's a, there's some cool stuff in a fight scene at the end uh, involving a cracked mirror. And uh, it's one of those ones with uh, Joe Shishido, which is really great. Uh, although he doesn't have a very big part in it. And uh, yeah, I thought that one was pretty good. It's the, uh, I find it very funny though, that, um, he cast like the main character is um, a news reporter, but he acts like a detective. I don't know. It's it, uh, I watched it with a friend, and we were laughing about that the whole time. But I, I, I did think that that one was one of the, was one of the good ones. Um, is that Joe Shishido? Is that pre or post plastic surgery? Oh, he's still. I mean, I, I feel like when I was going through these, I feel like I watched his cheeks get bigger. Yeah. I could still – he still had the distinct cheeks in that one. So. Okay. Because <laughs> that's – we'll talk more about Joe Shishido when we're talking about uh, Suzuki's later films. But I think I think those two are a very good actor-director pair. 
right. and his famous cheekbones are part of that. <laughs> um, I think, did you see, let's see, I'm going through this filmography right here. I think the next one you would have seen is Take Aim at the Police Van. Take Aim at the Police Van is the opposite. Take Aim at the Police Van is one of those ones where he was following the rules, and it's just kind of not very interesting. I mean, I think Take Aim at the Police Van is also hobbled by a particularly convoluted script. Yeah. I remember really having trouble following the movie, and uh, I did not like that one very much. That's not high on my list. It has a great opening. Yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, the writing on the window, like the somebody writes a message on a window with chalk, and uh, the, there's a sniper like hiding in the hills, and he reads he reads the message written on the window through the sniper scope. And I, I I saw that and I thought, oh, this is going to be pretty good. But then the movie just gets completely muddled after that. Yeah, there's a there's a the thing about taking aim at the policeman, and then this is also applies to a lot of these early Suzuki movies, um, is that. It has a great opening, like it's very promising at the start. And I want to say, I I didn't watch all of Voice without uh, without a shadow. Um, that's the that's the name of the movie, right? No, the, no, taking out the police fan. Voice, yeah, you voice. Can... Okay, yeah, okay. I watched the first like ten minutes of Voice without a shadow at the beginning of this year, and I just wasn't into it, so I turned it off. And this is before I knew I was going to be doing this episode. Um, mm. And I felt the same way about Voice Without a Shadow that I did about Take the Aim of the Police Man, which is like it had a really strong opening that is very intriguing. And then there is just something about Suzuki where – and again, this could be just the narrative I'm constructing in my head because of the arc of his career. But like mm-hmm. it just – he just feels so disengaged from the material it just like especially take aim at the police van he just really doesn't care about these characters he doesn't care about this story he doesn't there's no he doesn't draw draw out any interesting themes even like the most generic themes that you get in noir like hopelessness or you know paranoia or whatever like he just he he really is at a distance from it and there there's a line in take aim at the police van where the reporter is trying to figure out what's happened. Is it a reporter in Take Aim or is it a cop? In in, in I I don't remember Take Aim with the police fan very well. I remember the beginning and I remember just getting lost. Yeah, but um, it's a it's a reporter in a Voice Without a Shadow. Anyway, there's a couple the private detectives, reporters, cops, whatever. They're <laughs> uh, concerned family members. They they all end up <laughs> fulfilling the same role in these movies. Uh, but there's a line where the main character is interviewing this person trying to get to the bottom of this mystery. And the person goes, do you like mystery novels, car, queen, Irish? Their work is so wonderfully convoluted. And, like, that's the <laughs> one moment in the movie where I was like, is that Seiji Suzuki just sort of thumbing his nose at the whole enterprise of making this? But he didn't <laughs> He didn't write the script and whatever. Like, it's not interesting in the way that uh, Tokyo Drifter or Branded to Kill would be. Um, and then after take aim at the police van, uh, you have a chronological list. What's the next movie chronologically that you've seen? Take aim at the police van, by the way, is 1960. So we've jumped ahead a bit. I don't have, I don't have the list in front of me because, uh, the thing that I would be using to look it up, we're using to record. But, uh, I mean, the next one I wanted to talk about, I think we might've even passed it is the one, the other one that I thought would go well with voice without a shadow, which is called, 
Um, I, I I always get it confused. I think it's Passport to Darkness. Okay, I, I didn't I, I didn't realize that, that was available to be seen. It wasn't. It was the only way that I saw it was I, that was the one that I made on the um, thirty five millimeter. Oh right, tour. right, sure, sure. So tell me about Passport to Darkness. That's nineteen fifty nine. So we did skip that one. Passport to Darkness is. I mean, uh, the thing that I think is interesting is because you you say not engaged with the characters, but I mean, when you talk about that, I would wonder, um, like, what what's your criteria for being engaged with the characters? Because I think Passport to Darkness is a really great, like, prototypical film noir, and um, but I, I suppose that I enjoy that movie mostly on the level of of spectacle and, and thrills. Like it's, it, I don't need it to be much deeper than that. If it's like a pulpy sort of movie. Sure. Um, this this one's about, um, uh, uh, a trumpet player in a jazz club and he's about to get engaged or he's engaged and he's about to get married. And, um, on the day that he's going to get married or the day that he's like the day before he's married, he's about to be married. Um, his wife, or his would-be wife is murdered, and um, he he sets out to find who killed her and solve the mystery. And I just remember there's this great part where um, he's ultimately he's ultimately wrangled it so like because he knows the killer must have been at the nightclub that he plays at, and so he sets up this gambit where he's going to play the song that they loved. Um, and there's the chance that at the end of the song that the guy's going to show up and kill him. And so that's the thing that sticks out in my head is this really amazing, like, like really B thriller scene where he's, he's in the jazz club and he's playing the song and you're just wondering, you know, is this guy going to pop up? Like, cause he could get shot at any moment. And, uh, I just remember that one really being thrilling in a very simple straightforward way i don't know that it had a whole lot of like later suzuki would get into avant-garde flourishes i think it has some of his more um fundamental tricks like the the way his camera moves and i it's not when i say the way his camera moves you know i talk about making the most of the sets but i think he's also just very good at like establishing information really quickly through these surprisingly simple shots like i don't know what it is about modern movies like maybe it's just seeing a lot of those and you know quick cutting and changing angles and somehow it gets confusing but i feel like one of suzuki's great skills is just these really simple like almost comic book level uh compositions that just tell you everything you need to know um, it, it might've been that one where there's this scene where the character, the main character is sitting at the bar and he's looking at somebody on his left and I, and then somebody important walks in and the camera spins all the way around. It does a 180 to look at that ca- character sitting in the background, sitting at a table, like uh, on the other side of a partition. And so like you're watching this thing that the character, the main character isn't seeing, but is crucial to the telling of the story. And it's like little things like that really jump out at me when I'm watching Suzuki. I do. Yeah. I think, I think maybe now would be a good time to talk about his general overall style. We talked about his movement of the camera. I think so before I started this, I always sort of instinctually associated Seijin Suzuki with, Takashi Miike 
Um, mm. And so, like, I grew up in, you know, I was born 1987. So, like, by the time I started getting interested in, in strange films, cult films or whatever, like, the number one name in extreme transgressive slash cult slash whatever you want to call uh, psychotronic, like, uh, world cinema was Takashi Miike. That was like the height. That was Ishii the Killer. That was, it was well after audition, but it was like happiness of the Katakuris. That was when it seemed like every single, cause this was also part of the ring and the grudge and all every J horror movie coming to America, uh, at least on home video. It seemed mm-hmm. that, <clears throat> it seemed that every other month, some new Takashi Miike movie was, was hitting the video store. And the thing that, other than uh, sort of taking on a lot of projects that they have little creative input on a fundamental level as far as, like, screenplay and uh, originating the project and everything, uh, mm-hmm. they're both very prolific. Uh, I think I think probably Takashi Miike still is, but he has sort of exited the point where most of his films uh, come to America in some form. But um, they were they also broke taboos and they uh you know very strange uh artistic flourishes and um another thing about them that makes the preparing for this episode a little frustrating or i should say specifically about seijin suzuki is every interview seijin suzuki downplays his role as an artist he doesn't like Mm. to talk about his political intent he doesn't (laughs) like to talk about you know what he was going for he he makes these films, especially later in his career, that are so provocative and strange. You want to know where they came from. You want to have the full story of like what what is branded to kill? Like what the fuck? Like you don't just <laughs> accidentally make branded to kill. And but Seiji Suzuki is very coy in interviews and always, you know, he he's like, well, I just wanted to interest myself as I was doing these movies, and it was just a job to me. And you know, um, and so they're both sort of befuddling auteurs in that way. But one fundamental stylistic thing that links Takashi Miike and Seijin Suzuki to me is that their films are almost always entirely made of master shots, which is to mm. say there's no coverage. There's no cutting back and forth. If you watch a Seijin Suzuki movie, like just muted and you're just paying attention to the shots, the, like the camera setups, he almost never cuts back to a setup that you previously seen. He only goes forward. He never like there's very few. There's not just establishing shots. There's not a uh, shot reverse shot when people are having conversations. Uh, he almost always cuts to a new – every time there's a cut, it's almost always to a camera angle that we haven't seen before. Um, and I, don't, I don't know what, if, what you would say about Mike, but I mean it, it, it really feels like a part of the Suzuki style, though you could also wonder if it stems from – just not having enough time to do that kind of. I mean, that's a that's a fundamental part of it. Absolutely is, and I think probably for both of them is that they're working very quickly with a limited budget, and they're coming up with ideas on set as opposed to, you know, uh, very tightly constructed storyboards. So a lot of it is just on, like you know, shooting by the flying by the seat of their pants. You know, getting the stuff they can get, um, and part of that is what makes their movies so chaotic and exciting, especially when they're really leading into it in films like Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill and stuff like that. But also when it comes to meat and potatoes, nuts and bolts of a mystery film like 
take aim at the police van like uh the film he made after take aim at the police van the sleeping beast within um it's really like really difficult to follow the plot you're really fighting it because <laughs> because he, things aren't necessary like y- you did bring up you know the the sort of way he presents all the information that you need to know in passport to darkness uh in a single shot i will argue that he often does the opposite uh in some <laughs> other movies and i think take aim at the police fan is one example i think sleeping beast within is another where you you feel like you're fighting against the filmmaking just trying to follow what's going on and when the movie is surreal and when they're when it's avant-garde then it's cluing you in that actually you don't need to worry about the mystery. It doesn't matter. Like stop, stop worrying about that. But in these early films, when he hasn't yet reached that point, it makes them really baffling. And so the sleeping beast within is a film uh, about a daughter whose uh, father comes home, I think from a journey to America and he's just acting very strangely and, he retires from his job, but then he disappears for a week and she's trying to figure out where he goes and he comes back and he's just very coy about where he's been. And she, her boyfriend slash friend slash, uh, fan, like a family friend is a reporter. So they sort of become the detectives, which, cause all these, all these films have a detective, uh, protagonist <laughs> and they're trying to figure out what happened with him. And there are like little, they're little bits and pieces. They're little moments. Uh, like they're they're interviewing someone uh, at this bar, and she's recounting the story of this girl's father being at this bar with these you know shadowy gangster types. And when she as she's recounting this, the camera sort of pans the, to the left, and it does sort of a thing. I think Edgar Wright did it in like Scott Pilgrim or whatever, where all the lights in the bar fade down, and then it dissolves in like it sort of does a double exposure. Uh, mm. Where her memories like fade in onto the left side of the frame, where it's it's a combination of optical and like actual stage lighting technique um, mm-hmm. that's really cool. And there's a couple moments. I think the ending is really kind of spectacular. I can't recall it at the moment, but in my notes, I wrote down <laughs> that a spectacular, fiery ending. But I saw it like three months ago now. Um, but. It's but like on a fundamental level, I just couldn't enjoy it because it's just I I feel like Seijin Suzuki doesn't care enough about this. Like so, when I talk about him not caring about the characters, not caring about the story, I mean he doesn't find a way to uh, he he presents the scenes as they were probably in the script and they follow one another, but there's not a real through line. There's not like a sense of logic that good mysteries need to have for you to follow them. Um, That's interesting. Cause I, I would say that, you know, uh, uh, the most, like if I'm not talking about something like taking the police fan, which I just didn't like, um, if I'm talking about something that I sort of liked, you know, like um, uh, eight hours of terror, I feel like there are scenes like that, that the movie has enough, you know, there are certainly scenes in, in, in eight hours of terror that I found, were a drag that I would have, that I don't didn't think anything particular interesting was going on, but I did feel like the overall <laughs> experience of the movie dra- pulled me along. Like there was enough interesting characters or enough scenes in which I had something to hold on to or that I found gripping 
that the overall experience of the movie was enjoyable, even if I thought it could have been shorter. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's a thing. And and then like, I've already, I've already talked about how I'm not hot on Sage and Suzuki. So just to make me like full blown, uncool cinephile, I'm going to go ahead and also say, I'm not a big fan of Dario Argento. And I have yeah. a I have a sort of similar problem where like there are moment there are scenes in Dario Argento movies where it's like this is the scene Dario Argento cared about, and there are scenes in Dario Argento movies where you're like, oh, he didn't give a fuck about this. <laughs> like he barely <laughs> showed up to shoot this scene of bad like sex comedy jokes of these two characters who are going through like the most basic exposition ever. Uh, in in movies like Deep Red or even Tenebrae, there's just like a lot of stuff that. Like, you can just tell, or I feel, I at the very least, I should say, that I just, Argento did not give a shit about. And I feel that a lot uh, with Seijin Suzuki and these early films. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's just this thing where it's like, I'm sticking around because I know something interesting is going to happen because he's just sort of a natural artist who has good ideas. And I don't know. I, I, I just because someone like him presents himself as sort of a, he presents himself sort of as a naive outsider artist. Like, I think it, I think it can be easy to, uh, dismiss the, the work he puts into it. And it can be easy to dismiss, uh, like artistic labor and vision by saying like, Oh, Sage Suzuki's just a fucking crazy man. And he just has a fucking crazy idea and throws it on screen. So, you know, like, like he doesn't even know what he's doing. Like I, I don't want to. You know, there, there's. I even though that's the way it can feel sometimes. I think that's probably almost never true when it comes to art. Um, mm-hmm. Just because you can't sense the effort that went into something doesn't mean there wasn't effort that went into it. Um, probably a tremendous amount of effort given the amount of like the small amount of time he was given to do it. Uh, but at any rate, like the thing that keeps me bouncing off most of these films, even the films I kind of like, like Eight Hours of Terror um, or uh, The Boy Who Came Back, is that feeling of, it, yeah, I guess the best way, the best word I have I used earlier is just aloof. Like it feels like Seijin Suzuki is very aloof uh, when making these films. Uh, I don't know if there's enough of a difference, but I, I would probably be more inclined to go with functional that he gets it. He gets it on the screen. But like to me, functional is like, you can follow the story. (laughs) (laughs) Like I watched, I watched the sleeping beast within and like 30 minutes in, I was struggling to remember what character was who and why this piece of information, like why it suddenly zoomed in on an object. And I'm like, wait, what, what is the significance of that object? Uh, I should also say, uh, like full, I don't know, like what's, what's the point of doing this, you know, this podcast, this work of criticism, if you can't just be honest about your actual reactions to these movies and be honest about yourself and your own shortcomings in viewing them. Uh, the other thing about watching, this is true in a lot of foreign films, uh, which is just that. I don't speak the language and therefore I have trouble telling people apart because like I can't identify them by their voice. Um, and if it's the a black, I, and, it, 
if it's a black and I'm white film where a bunch of direct where a bunch of actors are all dressed similar and I can't really pick out one voice from another because I don't I can't pick out the fine details of that from a language I don't speak. Um like I'm that's going to be an uphill battle when you're watching a sort of convoluted mystery film. The thing that helps me is that Suzuki does have a pretty reliable roster of you know, uh, like the, he uses the same people over and over again. So for me, at least, um, when I watch enough of them, then I start to recognize. I don't even need to know, like, because I I can't remember any of these people's names. Like uh, names, I'm really bad with in general. But uh, I can't remember the actors' names for the most part. But I can remember I saw that person in a different Seijin Suzuki movie. And then you know, when I was watching Eight Hours of Terror for example, I was looking at these people and it's a lot of them have distinct enough looks that it's easy to sort of imagine who the American actor would be if they remade it. So that's the thing that I, I kind of do. In <laughs> the, that's, that's your, that's your memory device is like, Oh, that guy looks like uh Japanese Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. The, 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 the guy specifically in eight hours of terror, the lingerie salesman, I kept thinking, this is the, this is the Japanese Thomas Lennon. If they made this movie now, <laughs> they would cast Thomas Lennon in that role. That's but funny. yeah, I just, I just generally remember them from other Suzuki movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's, I mean, it's also possible, like, it's also fully possible, like, I'm just a fucking white dude who's racist, <laughs> like, <laughs> who can't pick out actors. Like, I've definitely, I like I definitely saw three Joe Shishido films before I realized that he was in all of them. Uh, like <laughs> I would have thought the cheekbones would have been a giveaway. I, that's the that's the craziest thing is that it's like he has the weirdest looking face, and it's it still just did not register to me. And part of it is that these viewings are spread across multiple months instead of one right after another. Um, Whereas I got him in, I got him in right here at the end, one after another. I delayed. Some of the delay here was that I just couldn't, for some reason, I just didn't feel like getting started. And then finally, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm just gonna watch one of them. Yeah. And I watched one of them, and then I was off to the races. But uh, I think w- what I was gonna do is I was gonna jump ahead a little bit. I think I'm more close to it anyway. But the first Seijin Suzuki film, the one that got my attention that I think is probably a really good primer for the things that Shinji Suzuki is really good at is uh, youth of the beast. And I was wondering, did you, you got a chance to see that one? Um, uh, where, where, hold on. I'm trying to figure out if youth of the beast came before or after, uh, detective bureau two, three. I think it it was the same year. They both came out the same year. Okay. So, we can talk about both of them at the same time. Youth of the Beast is another film that I watched uh, like the first maybe 45 minutes or so of at the very beginning of this year um, before I knew we were going to be doing this episode. And I sort of could not follow it. I could <laughs> not get into the plot at all. Um, it, I agree with you. Like a lot of the stuff that would pop up in Tokyo Drifter and Branded to kill, like a lot of that feeling, uh, is in Youth of the Beast, but like I just could not get into it, so I did not watch Youth of the Beast. I would say, I can I can get into Youth of the Beast. I mean, so I I had no notion of Suzuki. I bought Youth of the Beast uh, on sale at a whim, just because it was the Criterion, and I thought 
this is on sale. It doesn't matter what it is. Even if I hate it, I could I could get rid of it, and it w- I would probably make money. So I watched it, and I was just really struck by Youth of the Beast. Um, I find that Youth of the Beast is like a really great. It's not. It's not. I mean, you you had trouble following it. Uh, I I find that some of his like you know if you get if you jump in at Branded to Kill, you're just going to be way into the deep end. I think Youth of the Beast is a pretty great pulpy action movie in the vein of like Django because it's about this guy played by Joe Shishido um, who shows up out of the blue. Um, he shows up out of the blue and um, he infiltrates this gang um, and uh, he just like you're you're sort of kept in the dark. So I can see why you might have been confused. You're kept in the dark for a little while about why he's doing this. But it turns out that um, he was a friend and a co-worker of this other cop who got murdered. And um, the murder was made to look like a suicide, but he knows that it wasn't. Um, he knows that somebody in this gang um, is responsible. And he not only infiltrates one gang, but he also infiltrates the competitive gang so that he can play both of them against uh, one another and he does you know you get to see like uh the trick you described where he dims the lights there's this scene near the beginning of the movie where um the brother of the lead gangster is torturing this woman who's like really uh tripping like she she's she's having withdrawal syndromes from like uh, opium or whatever and there's this amazing bit where he's like He's dangling the uh, package of drugs in front of her to get her attention. And it cuts to this. uh, It it does a crossfade with this scene of him like skipping off into the distance, which is her vision of how he's running away. But he just he's just walking down the stairs, things like that. And um, it's got these little colorful details like the rival gangster. Um, His headquarters is in is in a in the back of a a, a, a movie like a um, why am I blanking on the word of theater? And so um, whenever he goes to that gangster's place, you can see the images playing on the screen in the background behind him. And um, I find that movie particularly funny. I think it's a really good Joshida performance. Um, it's got really great, colorful characters. I think um, that one has a particularly good script in terms of giving each character a really striking personality. Um, and... Yeah, I think it's just a Youth of the Beast is a really good example of everything he does well. And it's one of the ones, and it's, it seemed to be totally dictated by budget, but it's one of the ones that's in color. So you get even more layers of being able to differentiate the characters because he has this tendency to keep the characters in the same costumes, like a cartoon, so that whenever you see that character show up, you can re- remember, oh, that's the guy in the crimson suit. And you sort of get used to that as the movie goes on. But yeah, I think youth of the beast is really a really great B picture. And I think it, it's, it's also interesting as a counterpoint to the one that you did see. And I think you liked more than youth of the beast, which is the detective bureau two, three, which I also really enjoy. Yeah. I, I really, this is definitely like one of my favorite, uh, Seiji Suzuki films, detective bureau two, three colon go to hell comma bastards. <laughs> uh, which is a which is a terrific title. I mean, there's a ton of really good titles in Seijin Suzuki's filmography. You want to just scroll across his IMDb. I don't know if IMDb lists uh, translated I mean, titles or not, but the one that I want to the the one 
it's one of his youth pictures, and he did two of them, but they're called, I think they're called Young Breasts. I think that's the name of those movies, and I'm like, what? what is that about? He did Young Breasts, <laughs> which apparently, I, I did look it up, Young Breasts is another, uh, like, it's basically the same as The Boy Who Came Back, where it's like a social worker and a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> um, it's It sounds like something that should put you on a watch list, but I think it is actually just a very generic, uh, sort of drama. <laughs> the wind of youth group crosses the mountain pass. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, but okay. So detective bureau two, three, go to hell bastards is the movie that made me sort of sit up and recognize Joe Shishido. Uh, and it, even, even though I had already seen branded to kill, I think that whole movie is so nuts that like he's only a blip on it uh and he like he kind of fits in it into it in a way that you don't realize. So, I don't wanna, I don't want to body shame anybody, uh but it was the 60s and cosmetic surgery was not what it is now and Joe <laughs> Shishido was an actor who thought he would get better roles if he had more prominent cheekbones. So, he had uh a cosmetic surgery on his face and the result is he looks i think like okay what like i don't whatever uh a body I shaming most people describe him as chipmunk cheeked chipmunk cheeked he looks like a dick tracy character like an illustration come to life and I think I think what's interesting is that across the movies that they made together, I mean, Shinji Suzuki uses him in a lot of different contexts, and I think he's pretty good in all of them. And I, the Detective Bureau Two Three is especially delightful because he gets to be he gets to really play pure comedy. I mean, yeah. I, for me, the highlight of the movie both times I watched it because I watched it again before recording is when he does a song and dance routine. It's just like amazing. He so the thing about Seijin Suzuki is. His good crime movies can often feel like parodies of crime movies. They feel like like they exist to take the piss out of the genre they're in. Um, and Joe Shishido, with his weird grimace and his weird face, uh, and he just he just has a really strange screen presence. Like he feels like a parody of masculinity in that same way. Like he feels like the the grim uh sort of hyper competent uber male like taken to a laughable degree to the point where it is just comedy um so he fits in these movies like he fits in branded to kill perfectly he fits in detective bureau 23 perfectly um gate of flesh his role in that film like that presence is just perfect. But the other thing about Detective Bureau 23 is it's an he's a detective. He's not a he's like a private detective who's working in conjunction with the police. But it's an undercover movie. And I love <laughs> undercover movies. And it's an undercover movie that is it has a good story. Like Seijin Suzuki's this is a, a in dramatic contrast to his, some of his earlier stuff. This is by the way 1963 is uh, Youth of the Beast and Detective Bureau 2-3. So we're getting into, this is the era of Seijin Suzuki that he is known for. Um, I just think, like, the writing is sharper. There's the, the twists in the story are good in a way that not, they're not just good because they're strange. They're good because 
you don't see them coming and they're, they have good character moments. He's, he has a bunch of really good character moments and, but there is that absurdity to it. So like one of the things about Yakuza movies, uh, well, in about Japan in general is unlike America, Japan has strict gun laws. Um, so Yakuza movies often have, uh, people fighting with swords. There's not a lot of, it's not just like big gunfights all the time. There, mm-hmm. Japanese cinema doesn't really have that tradition of gunfights the way American cinema does with westerns and gangster movies and stuff like that. Um, but in Detective Bureau 23, because everything is just turned up to 10 all the time, there is just this early sequence where this guy who may or may not have snitched to the cops but nonetheless is wanted dead by like a hundred different gangs is being released from prison and there's just a hundred like uh conflicting gangs that all descend upon this area outside this prison and have this insane gunfight and it is just five straight minutes of like extras (laughs) firing blanks and it is so hilarious and absurd it's like the scene in predator where they're just shooting into the jungle for three minutes like it's so ridiculous especially in the context of japanese film where you don't see this kind of gunplay a lot uh it it is that sort of parody of action movie it's that parody of masculinity um and there's a couple sequences like that that are just the action sequence taken so far it's almost like there's a there's a scene where Joe Shishido and the female lead sort of get trapped and they have to get themselves out and it feels like it's I mean particularly because of the vibrant colors this is another early color film of his uh particularly because of the vibrant colors and Seiji Suzuki's sort of pop art aesthetic like it feels like an episode of the 60s Batman TV show sometimes <laughs> And yeah, it's like and the the scene you describe, I mean it's even it's just full on like almost like airplane level absurdity. And yeah. I really I I find that really entertaining. You know, it makes me wish that um he did more pure comedies cuz I think Detective Bureau 23, I mean it does have a pretty good crime story in it. Um but I would still probably classify it as a comedy more than anything. Yeah, yeah. I I think it is an action comedy. I think it is like it's intentionally funny in the way that you know, like the '60s Batman TV show is intentionally funny. Um, right. It's not. It's not quite as campy, but it is like it's up there, uh, and it's just like really thoroughly well made and entertaining. And it's this sort of like alternate. I don't know how it did, uh, like box office wise. I don't know if it was actually a hit or not. But like, it's this other glimpse into maybe Seiji Suzuki could have been someone who balanced his own weird sensibility with uh you know with studio demands and made very idiosyncratic but still uh not necessarily subversive not necessarily challenge like it's entertaining but it's not necessarily challenging in a way that branded to kill is mm-hmm. and it's like this alternate career he could have had is making these detective bureau movies um, and you know, there's a bunch of films he made in 19 in the early to mid 60s that I haven't seen. So for all I know, he made a handful of them. Um, but and he certainly he certainly seems aware of you know how this comes off because like the the opening scene, which is a heist, um, it's it's like a bunch of uh, criminals 
And at one point, like they come in in a hijacked Pepsi truck. And so it's the scene of them shooting up the Pepsi bottles. And that feels like a real wink at the audience as to yeah. what the movie do. I, I, you know, like I said, like, like we said at the start, we're not experts on Japanese history or Japanese culture or Japanese film. But I will say, like, one of the easiest things that it, for a Japanese artist to do uh, post-war is to, like, just have images of American imperialism in the form of, like, Coca-Cola ads or Pepsi bottles and stuff. Like, Ozu movies are full of fucking, like, Coca-Cola ads. <laughs> and it's because all of Ozu movies are, like, about post-war trauma and stuff like that. Um, and, yeah, it, there's definitely... We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit because uh, Gate of Flesh... Um, yeah, that makes a good segue into Gate of Flesh. Because Gate of Flesh is like what like you want to talk about trauma like gate of flesh is one of the mo of all of the many many japanese new wave uh uh i mean and films that you wouldn't consider part of that sensibility about post-world war ii and about uh japan as a nation dealing with uh its role in world war ii and what it meant and how it got there and where it can go from there uh Gate of Flesh is just fucking brutal. Mm -hmm. And I think Gate of Flesh, I mean, most of the movies that Seijin Suzuki made, even if they are dramatic, they're still generally sort of fun. I feel like Gate of Flesh is probably the one that's like pure drama. So it's like yeah. a, a, a real counterpoint to Detective Bureau 2-3. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, you would I, would, I would characterize something like The Boy Who Came Back as pure drama, but The Boy Who Came Back is pure drama in a very unengaged generic kind of way. Whereas gate of flesh, uh, is pure Suzuki. Um, and, but it's very subversive. It's very challenging. It's very thorny and difficult and full of weird aesthetic ch touches, but it, he is not taking the piss out of these characters or the situation. Uh, he is, he is fully engaged with the material in a way that he not, he is not always, it's an it's an angry movie, and very. It's, and, but it, and it's it, it's got these really great performances from the four women who play the like. It's about these four women who are prostitutes um, in post war, uh, like this bombed out area. Um, you were talking earlier about how you know uh, the um, the boy who returned is that what it's called? Yeah, boy who uh, came you back. Know, you, the boy who came back, how he used the uh, natural projections design. But I think uh, Gate of Flesh is a really interesting, like, intentionally – some of it looks really intentionally artificial. Like, uh, the bombed-out buildings look have a, have a sort of, um, like, uh, old Western artificiality to them that I find very interesting. But, yeah, it's about these four prostitutes, and um, there's a character played by Joshishido. He is a returner. Um, he came back from the war, and uh, it's kind of like you know the soldiers who came back from Vietnam, which is that the people people were not a fan of them because it's like they lost or something. So they came back, and um, his only choice is to turn to petty crime. So he steals a bunch of penicillin, and he gets into a fight with an American soldier, and he stabs him in the leg. And uh, so now the police are the American police and the Japanese police are both on the lookout for him. And so he he, he shacks up with these prostitutes um and I, I the movie has sort of this it's like a battle between um 
the rage that they feel and like the people who want things to return to the way they were before. There's a fifth prostitute who's like pining for marriage. Like she doesn't really want to be doing this, but she doesn't have a choice. And uh, they don't like her because she clearly has this streak of conservatism that, that, that that's going to fuck up their whole business um the, their one rule is like don't sleep for don't sleep with anyone for free and they get the impression that because she wants to be married and have that traditional life that she's probably going to be the one to break the rule but then Shido comes in and he's like he's a real catalyst like he sets them all off They're it's a very attractive. it's a very beguiled kind of setup oh yeah yeah where he's this he's injured uh in his, when he was on the run from the police he gets injured and he sort of hides out with them, and yeah, obviously he is this. And, and you know, to Suzuki's credit, this this is a very kinky movie. This is a movie with a lot of uh, sweaty, uh, nearly nude or nude women uh, being tied up and beaten and whipped and stuff like that. Like, but to his credit, uh, Joe Shijito's body is also objectified and sweaty and. Uh, because it's so important to the story that like he be the sex object for these women to to sort of disintegrate over uh like he he is, his body is shot in very provocative close ups as well mm-hmm. um and it's I- a, yeah it's a, it's an interesting movie because it's a movie about this feeling of uh we like whatever we thought of as society, whatever we thought of as Japanese culture, whatever we thought of as the way things operated, they led us to world war two. They led us to national shame and defeat and ruin and, you know, rationing and this occupation by this foreign army and all of this awful stuff. So it is, there is this sort of radical political mood to it, which is these women who are, they are like, so like the idea of like, like you were saying, you know, one of the rules is they can't have sex for free. They have to like pay for money. It's, it's about sort of like radically recontextualizing what you can get from a society and what society wants out of you. And this sort of nihilistic approach to it, um, which, you know, is personified in Joe Shishido's character who, you know, he, he goes up into these speeches about all he cares about is eating food and fucking and, you know, and like the reason you live is because that's what allows you to eat food and fuck. And um, it's this it's and but the movie does not necessarily take his side. The movie is about uh, sort of how impossible it is to reconcile being a human being in a terrible situation where you you can't you can't be a traditional person with traditional beliefs and traditional uh, morals and ideals because you're just going to starve. But at the same time, the new belief systems and the new uh, rules that you have set up for yourself and the, this sort of co-op of prostitutes who have sort of come together in order to uh, lift each other up. Like they're also doomed because they are trading in one oppressive system for another. Um, so it's, it's, it's very engaged politically uh, and really interesting. And it, but it also, but like it, it doesn't get preachy. It doesn't 
get didactic because it is also this like super high powered melodrama where it's almost like a Tennessee Williams play or something where just everyone <laughs> is hot and sweaty and they all have tragic backstories and they're all just sexually frustrated. Um, mm-hmm. But, and then also like it has that side of it where there are just scenes of like women being tied up and hung from the ceiling and, and like whipped and dangled and spun around. Like, like it's really kinky. Like it's, um, it's, this is a movie that, you know, it came out in 1964. So even in Japanese cinema in 1964, it, it was breaking boundaries. Um, yeah. The, the, the subplot about what happens to the, the one priest is just like, Oh geez. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There there's a there's another aspect of that which is that and again this is I'm unqualified to speak on uh because I'm not an expert on Japanese culture and Japanese history and everything. But uh the priest who is a sort of American GI who's a priest uh is black and I don't and I know that there's some culturally there's a lot of uh, I, again, I don't want to speak too much on it because it, because I can't speak comprehensively on it. But like, I never quite know where Suzuki is coming from when he casts like black actors, or like when it's revealed in Eight Hours of Terror that the prostitute was in love with a black GI specifically. Like, I never know if he's trying to point out racism in society or if it's just he is part of that society, so he's racist and is not familiar with African Americans or like what's going on. Like, I don't know. I, mean, That's, I, would, I, I can't quite unpack that one. I would be inclined to say that based on the, the, the other politics that are expressed in his movies, that he is, he is pointing out racism, but I mean, I, uh, I wouldn't know for sure either. I mean, there's also like, okay, so you can call him a leftist politically, like just to, just to put it in pretty vague terms. Yeah. Um, but, you know, his movies also uh, feature a lot of very violent fantasy, like sexual uh, fantasies against women and a lot of like just objectified women. And like, I don't again, like I can't fully unpack all of this. Uh, so I don't I, I hesitate br- even bringing it up or whatever. But I think it can be a mistake to assume that because someone is on the left that they can't also have all this other sort of problematic shit running through. And like when I watch Brandon to kill like that to me is a movie uh, that does not, <laughs> that, it, that, that does not, uh, that does not have very good portrayals of women. Um, I don't know. I, I think, I think Brandon to kill is interesting. I don't know if you want to get into it already or not. But, no, uh, we, we can, we can save that. And certainly gate of flesh uh, is does not have that same problem, but Gate of Flesh is also a scene again with with like just a lot of kinky sadomasochistic sexual moments, and you know Seijin Suzuki is not the primary screenwriter of any of his films, so it feels like Gate of Flesh sort of splits the difference. Like it is, it is very kinky, um, but I feel like you know he he casts the nudity in a lot of shadow. The movie does not have a lot of nudity in it, even though characters are naked. He uses shadow to obscure that kind of stuff. I mean, you can still see it, but I, I feel like the movie is is making a statement about how this is meant to be 
like you say, it's meant to be kinky or extreme, but it's also not meant to be exploitative. It's, well, it's I mean, is it is he is he putting them in shadow because he doesn't want to be objectifying, or is he putting them in shadow because it's 1964 and he can't get away with as much nudity as he would be able to three years later when branded to kill just has none of that. Like, like the, like the full, like it is full nude female shapes all the time. Like (laughs) in gate of flesh, like whether or not it's the, it's lit. So you can't quite see their nipples. Like, I don't know. Like it's, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that that hurts the film necessarily. Like part of what makes that movie so interesting to me is that it, uh, is that it? It's complicated, um, and <laughs> I that, do I do agree that it's complicated. That that it it has sort of a political viewpoint that, um, or it seems to have a political viewpoint that it then undercuts. And I think you are getting to the heart of it. That it's like that the things that they want to do and the way they're going about it, they just can't be reconciled. So I find that interesting. Right. It's in just it's just like the, the all the characters just exist in a world where everything has to be transactional. Um, and and it's probably less about his view of the world in general and more about his view of post-war Japan specifically. Right. Um, but And um, also, like, we're not Japanese historical experts. We're not experts on Japanese culture. So there might be very specific things that he is commenting on and referencing that completely went over our heads. The, the way the way I would I mean just for context what I would what I would have said is that my point of view would be that because he gets away with more nudity in Branded to Kill then I would assume that he's doing it on purpose in Gate of Flesh because it's not so much of a so much of a time gap that 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 I think the whole culture would have shifted but that's just I mean that's just based on that's just me reasoning it out I don't know that I mean that's all but also like Branded to Kill is the movie that got him fired. And he didn't specifically get fired because there was too much nudity. But like Branded to Kill was an outrageous movie that no actor, no none of the actor uh, female <laughs> actors at uh, Nakatsu wanted to be in because of all the nudity. And the same thing is true of Gate of Flesh. So like, I think the I think I think that he was pushing boundaries, and he knew how far he could push those boundaries. It's like Russ Meyer, where it's like Russ Meyer is absolutely objectifying the women <laughs> in his films, but there was a period of time when he couldn't get away with having them nude. And there was a period of time when he could, and you know, you can watch super vixens and you can watch Lorna back to back. And he has the same interest in women and their breasts, but like one of them, (laughs) he's going to have them more nude. And it's just a matter of time and context, but I can't really speak to that. Like it's, it's just, I'm just talking about the feelings I had watching the film. I'm just trying to be honest about like how I felt reacting to the movie as opposed to, stating in absolute terms what the movie oh, is sure. or isn't and and for the record you know you know i some of the comments that you've made like i i don't want to come up like it, it i think it's a better discussion if you have a different opinion than i do so it's not like uh i'm gonna feel like i i wasted fifty dollars or something because okay. you didn't like i do movies. i mean you did you absolutely wasted fifty dollars <laughs> and you should be ashamed of yourself <laughs> For saying anything positive about any of these films, but uh, I mean, you're gonna, you're that's just that's just your own cross to bear. I do want to say, uh, well, no, no, because we'll get to it. Um, 
Uh, yeah, we'll get to it uh, when we're. I can. There's a couple other older films that we skip past, but I don't have a lot to say about them, so I'm just going to talk about them in context. The films they remind me of. What's the after Gate of Flesh? Did you see Story of a Prostitute? No, I. That's one of the ones that's on Filmstruck that I didn't get to. Uh, and soon no one will be able to get to. Uh, I think so. Let's see. Gate of Flesh is 1964. We get into 1965 with Tattooed Life. Uh, I did see that one. That is a samurai picture that I, I don't have a great uh, a lot of memory of, but I did like it. Um, is it? Uh, it does it? Did it? Do you recall it feeling particularly Suzuki? Yeah, it felt very Suzuki. Even though it's a uh, the samurai pictures is obviously a pretty distinctly different you know environment than the gangster pictures or even Gate of Flesh, but I remember it feeling very Suzuki. Okay, so also 1960, uh, or no, we're going to go ahead to 1966 then with Tokyo Drifter. Tokyo Drifter I really like, and that's one of the ones that I rewatched. And uh, I, I guess uh, the one observation that I had watching again is that I think that when I watched it the first time, I thought of it more in the vein of of uh, Youth of the Beast, which is just like a revenge picture, and that you're supposed to be sort of you know, that you're waiting for the guy to get revenge on all the people who wronged him. But I watched it this time, and I found it far more despairing or, like, tragic than I did the first time. And I also was not aware that they did it to sell that song, but that makes a lot of sense, because they play it, like, 18 times during the movie. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Tokyo Drifter is an interesting movie. I also... So my first real Suzuki experience, my very first Suzuki experience was when I was like 15 and I rented Pistol Opera from the library mm-hmm. and I sort of watched the first 20 minutes and said, what the fuck is this? And it, it that movie is actually a sequel of some sorts to Tokyo Drifter, but obviously I had no context for Seiji Suzuki or Tokyo Drifter or anything. And I just found it baffling and I was 15 and bored. So I just turned it off. Uh, my next experience with Seijin Suzuki was I think they were also doing a retrospective of some sort at the Gene Siskel Film Center here in Chicago and I saw a double feature of Tokyo Drifter and Fighting Elegy um, mm-hmm. so seeing Tokyo Drifter in 35mm on the big screen um, it's it and it being my first Suzuki experience it was absolutely dazzling it's all like the colors are incredible it's very strange it starts off in black and white and then moves into color it it has uh, a weird self-referential thing at the time I thought was weird uh, now I see it's a very standard Suzuki sort of self-referential thing where there's the woman uh, in I like the plot I can't even really recap but She's like reading the uh, the manga about the Yakuza and she's sort of just like laughing and like as this Yakuza story is happening around her and it's very like it's very clear that that's like Seijin Suzuki sort of pointing at the story and not, you know, and saying how like sort of ridiculous it is and doing his typical sort of approach to crime films and stuff. Um, so, like, my memory of Tokyo Drifter that first time is just like, wow, this is absurd. This is so crazy. This is absolutely ridiculous and nonsensical. And I sort of lumped it in with Branded to Kill. Um, and then when I rewatched it for this, I was like, oh, actually, actually, he does to an extent for a portion of this film 
he is dedicated to this story <laughs> of someone trying to go get out of the crime life and failing to and like wanting revenge and there are emotional stakes that he taps into yeah the way i would summarize the story is that um there is an old like there's an older uh he used to be like a mobster and he's gone straight and he bought this building but he borrowed some money to do it and so this outside like so it's the guy who has the building and the guy who loaned him the money for the building and they have a straight deal like he's actually going to pay him back and everything but this third gang comes in and they basically play both sides and they force like they make it seem like the guy who um borrowed the money is ripping the other guy off and vice versa and it screws everything up but in in the middle of it there's this young idealistic gangster like he's not a gangster but he was a gangster and he's 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 sworn it off along with his boss and he's very loyal to his boss and um the movie is about like all these other gangsters like sort of floating around especially this one um i forget what his nickname was but it had star in it but um he's like that guy's gonna betray you like that's just what's gonna happen like uh you shouldn't put so much faith in this father figure of yours because you know it's like we live the life of gangsters. He's probably going to turn on you. And uh, that's sort of the dramatic hook of the story. But that's also like the first 20 minutes. <laughs> kind of. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't actually get betrayed until like the last 20 minutes. So I, it's sort of it's sort of I, I see what you mean. Like the middle section is him him drifting away from the the, the old man and sort of trying to find this try to find a new life but you know uh he he just moves from place to place he's he's his girlfriend's like chasing him the whole way and uh he's just trying to find like some other place that he can be happy because he can't be in this with his father figure so i wanted to talk a bit about tokyo nights which is a seijin suzuki film from 1961 it's one of his youth films it's about mm-hmm. this kid who inherits this corporation from his father, or he inherits a Yakuza. I, the weird thing about this movie is the way it proceeds and the way the wording is. I couldn't tell if it was a legitimate business or a, a criminal organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, at any rate, um, one of the subplots is that this kid who inherits this organization is into no theater n-o-h theater are you familiar with no theater i read about it in one of these like i read the booklets that came with the criterion dvds and stuff but i don't remember the context okay so i also could not give you a proper uh synopsis of no theater other than it just being a traditional uh very heightened japanese theater style and if you want to know more, you should probably just look up no on Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> but at any rate, when I saw that in Tokyo Nights, part of me wondered how much Seijin Suzuki was is uh, inspired by it. Tokyo Drifter, we talked a lot about the sort of theatrical effects in like Gate of Flesh um, mm-hmm. and even sort of some of the lighting tricks he does in some of his early, less distinct films. Uh, but like Tokyo Drifter feels like the most theatrical it feels you know uh, Seijin Suzuki a lot of his 
sort of strange uh, aesthetic flourishes. They happen both as sort of opticals using dissolves and flashes of other images and dividing up the frame in strange ways and stuff like that. But he also does a lot of stuff on stage, uh, the way the sets are designed and the way, you know, in uh, Tokyo Nights, there's a club uh, one of the scenes takes place in, and there's just giant, insane, billowing red velvet curtains behind everyone, <laughs> and it it's very hard to understand like what <laughs> what that's actually supposed to be in the world of the film. And like Tokyo Drifter is that, especially the second half of Tokyo Drifter, is that like stretched to infinity. Like it's very theatrical, uh, and the set design and the art. Art, the art direction is so uh, wild. Um, it gets it gets even more. I feel like the finale is really the peak of that. But it's yeah. like there's a lot of stuff. I mean, it ha- it has its own ridiculous club, which is called like uh, the sewer or something, and it's just like a bunch of pipes on the walls, which is kind of funny. Um, and and like uh, the main character, you know, he does that thing where the character basically wears, wears the same costume again the whole movie. But because this is a story about the character being disillusioned, he goes from wearing this blue suit to wearing a gray suit to wearing a white suit over the course of the movie. And uh, yeah, a lot of it takes place in this club, this other club set where uh, his girlfriend performs and um, the club, like the lighting of the club will change drastically based on the mood of the scene and uh, that's very striking. And uh, like even when that when you're talking about that woman who was reading the uh, Yakuza comic book, is the key Yakuza stuff happens around her. Like she gets shot, and there's this scene where like or there's this shot where the um, the gangster who was her boyfriend like runs over, and behind behind in the background of the scene is this white just this white window. Like you don't even know what it is. It's just white. It doesn't show you the outside or anything. And, uh, when she gets shot, it turns blood red and things like that. And, uh, yeah, the visuals of this movie are very striking. A whole section of it takes place in the snow. So that adds even more visual interest. And, uh, you get more of this, the, the, the chaotic battles that you were talking about. There's one where it's guns and swords versus each other. Like, this whole fight scene and this it's shot kind of like the hallway scene in old boy where it's just a side view of this building and you can see people on both both uh levels of it and you know things like that the all the gun muzzle flashes are like a bright red i don't know if that was done optically or done on set but like it's one of the craziest looking things i've ever seen and it's so cool and i've never seen it I've never seen anyone fuck around with like the muzzle flash of a gun in any other it movie. Looks like a, it looks like a flare gun, basically. Yeah, it, if you look at the the poster, uh, or at least like the Criterion disc cover, um, it's it's featured prominently, and it's just really cool looking and strange. <laughs> but I will say, all of this artificiality. First time I saw this movie, it dazzled me, and especially seeing it on the big screen, not being prepared for it. Like, I, I really loved this movie when I first saw it. The second time through, I really liked it when, in the first part, when I was still following the story of this character and this this sort of double cross and the real emotional stakes that I felt that I ca- sort of caught me by surprise. And then as soon as he left, as soon as he sort of actually became a drifter, 
Mm-hmm. Like I just got completely lost. I'm like, wait, why is this happening? Where is he? Who are these people? What is this new problem that he's part of? What what is this club where this woman wants to dance with him while he's fighting these people? Like, like it was it was all way too much, and it was that thing where I just felt like uh, at a certain point Suzuki disengaged with the actual character in the story, and he just was only cared about the aesthetic side of it. Um, I think what I think what we're really learning is that I should just be there in person to help you through each of these movies. Yeah, possibly, like, yeah, it could possibly just be I can't follow them because I'm too slow or whatever. You could just you could well, and this one really sticks in the knife because there's a character named Tetsu and, and there's a character named Tatsu, which is just like the ultimate <laughs> fuck you to <laughs> trying to keep things straight. I guess so. I guess so. I definitely. <laughs> You know, I could follow the broad strokes, uh, but, like, I just, there's just something very, I don't know, it's, it's, it it's too much of a, it's too much of a crime film to be an art film for me. Mm. And then it's not enough of a crime film. Like, I don't, there's just something kind of weirdly vaguely unsatisfying about Tokyo Drifter for me uh as as many of its individual elements as I could single out as being dazzling and incredible uh and this is this is also true of Branded to Kill um uh, like m- much more so for Branded to Kill uh where I got lost way earlier um but I I just I I think Suzuki can tell stories and I think Suzuki doesn't always care to. And I think just my sensibilities uh, when he doesn't care to, I'm yeah, I find it. I, I really struggle with them. I think there's only about two movies left that we would be talking about, which um, you mentioned one of them already, which is fighting elegy. And then the other one would be branded to kill. I mean, yeah. what did you think of fighting elegy? I think fighting elegy is pretty coherent and i think it's it's a very interesting story to watch now because it's about um this young boy who is i I think he's is he catholic yes um and and he he he's he he just has a crush on a girl which is you know a totally normal thing but he is so repressed that he has no other outlet to put that repression into in his own mind i mean he could just he could just ask her out and she would probably like it um but uh he he doesn't have any outlet for that, so instead he turns to violence. Like he and at first, like for the first maybe half of the movie, that's really funny because the the violence is absurd. Like he's just like it's really ridiculous to watch him do this. And somewhere around the midpoint, um, he starts to get radicalized in a very negative way, and then the movie becomes very dark. And I thought Fighting Elegy was very impressive. Fighting Elegy is my favorite Seijin Suzuki movie. This is the other movie I saw, like, with Tokyo Drifter. And it is, you know, you said, like, you wish that Seijin Suzuki did more straight comedies. And as dark as Fighting Elegy gets at the end, like, I really think that Fighting Elegy is a black comedy. Like, I think it is hilarious the whole way through, even even when it gets into sort of thornier territory. Um, and darker implications like I 
everything about fighting LG laughs like it makes me laugh. I and in a way that like honestly, just there are Japanese films that I find that funny. Like I just my sensibility, my sense of humor, just in all the you know. Uh, contemporary and classic Japanese films in anime and whatever, like like video games, whatever Japanese media I've consumed, like the sense of humor is just a thing that I've just come to accept that I almost never uh, connect with. Um, and I think fighting elegy is so fucking funny. Fighting elegy feels like a really dark uh, version of Rushmore to me it feels <laughs> yeah. very wes anderson especially early on when it's like still sort of doing these jump cuts and these montages of him training and stuff and this like it has that wes anderson thing where there's a sense of whimsy to it but the but there's a bite like the like it's these gangs fighting and it's like ridiculous how these student gangs are like battling each other but when they do there's, battle each other scene. There's a scene where they the the gangs are really about to show down, and it's 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 shot kind of like the ending of Yojimbo. Yeah, but like but like when they do fight, it's not just goofy. Oh, it's kids; they're bonking each other ahead. Like the violent, like it, it's really brutal <laughs> in a way that like makes it funnier to me. Right um, from the beginning, there's that scene where um, he's just being like kind of picked on by these boys in school, and he he arranges this little stunt where he he gets a guy to fall on his own cleats, like yeah. to sit on them, and it's like already that's like a little bit. There's a little bit of edge to it. It's he's it's so and he's such a it's such a funny performance from uh, Hideki Takahashi. Mm-hmm. Um, who I think was in a several other Sage and Suzuki movies. Um, I can't really name it at the moment. Anyway, apparently he was in Tattooed Life. Uh, um, but at any rate, like he he as a portrait of sort of sexual repression run amok. Uh, it's 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 just beautiful. <laughs> it is like the like there's the scene where she's trying to teach him how to play piano and it's like just her sort of guiding his hands over the keys is <laughs> the most intense sexual experience this extremely horny boy has ever had <laughs> and it is just so it's it is just it is and you know and like I wouldn't want to ruin the joke, but then there's the other piano scene. Oh, yeah, no. The, the other – it's – I uh, the other piano scene's an all-time classic, uh, especially out of context. If you want if you want to look up Fighting Elegy Piano, I think there is an out-of-context clip on YouTube that – I think the punchline of that scene, which is the cross on the wall, is just like the that's, – that's perfect. It's so well, it's so like all, yeah, all the comedy is so well directed, uh, and visual in a way that a lot of comedy is not, but say, and like, again, Sage, he's, he's at, this is the very end of his career and he is real or not the very end because he came back 10 years after Branded to Kill and made more films. But like, this is the end of his, for this stage of his career and he is full blown, you know, doing weird insert shots and graphics. And there's the scene where all the students are mocking the teacher, calling him a duck. And it keeps <laughs> blocking one side of the frame and the other as they're like mocking him. There's just a lot of sequences that are about like 30 seconds long 
that feel just like perfectly constructed jokes on their own, but they all build together to tell this story of like sexual anxiety turning into militarism um, and And just unhealthy masculinity. Yeah. And I had to read the booklet to understand what the joke was exactly. But then there's also the one where he, he, he ends up having to move to a new school and he's listening to the people at this new school, like the authority figures at this new school talk. And every time they talk about like, I, I, th- I think it's like the school pride or something. Suzuki cuts in on their mouth for like a second and then moves back. And uh, that's really absurd and funny. Yeah. All the, uh, yeah, the, the I mean he 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 keeps the those kind of tricks to a relative minimum because I think the movie was very cheap, so he didn't really have the freedom to do a lot of that kind of stuff. But um, he does get some of it in there, and uh, I mean it's all and, it's all just enhancement. It's all it's none of it's distracting. It's all hmm. it's all just it when it fits in that scene. That's when he goes for it, um, and. Yeah, it's really. I mean, it's it's hard. For, I I always have trouble talking about comedies because it's just me listing things I think are funny. Um, right, right. But and it does have that same sort of uh, overall arcing theme as something like Doctor Strange Love or something, uh, where it's just like where like why are all these wars started? And it's just like because men are horny and don't know how to handle their emotions. Uh, like it all, it all segues into the February 26th incident, which I had to look up, uh, cause I'm not, I was not familiar with it beforehand, but it was basically, uh, an event in 1936 when there, uh, was like a lot of, uh, army officers who tried to stage a coup of the Japanese government. Yeah. Uh, And then uh, apparently it went very badly too. Like the, um, the end result was that sort of a uh, even more conservative government was installed. The, uh, this is another thing that I learned from the booklet uh, that came with the Criterion DVD because I wouldn't have known any of that history either. It mentioned that um, this is one of the ones that, um, I mean, you talk about, and I don't have any, other than fighting elegy, I don't have any information that would state otherwise, but um, apparently he really heavily rewrote the script for this one himself. Um, and then eventually he published it in a book and, and, you know, it was his, the script that they published was definitely his and not the guy who actually wrote it or is credited as writing it. And he had even written a sequel that would have gone to the, you know, um, in, into the war that's being set up at the end. Yeah. Uh, it didn't get- that would have been incredible. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I also read that this was like the exception in Seijin Suzuki's career as far as like projects that he spearheaded as opposed to projects that got assigned to him. Um, though the next film we're going to talk about branded to kill, uh, was also, it was also the result of him, uh, sort of taking initiative because the studio had nothing for him. Um, Oh, and one of the things you said earlier that I thought was interesting is that, um, that you were talking about how he doesn't like to talk about the the impetus behind his work. And one of the things that I thought was interesting when I was watching Brandon to Kill is that, I mean, I guess if you don't have any reason to believe otherwise, um, that leaves the, the, the insanity of Brandon to Kill open to a lot of interpretations to be grafted onto it. So maybe that is one of the reasons that Brandon to Kill endures so much. I mean, I do think Brandon to Kill is a pretty much a 
I, you know, I said that Youth of the Beast is like a great starter film, and I think that Brandon to Kill is similar in the sense that it really gets in all of the things that make Suzuki Suzuki, but it's really the advanced version where it's just like, you know, it can be very hard to follow anything, and it's the movie is absurd and it just jumps all over the place and. Uh, it really gets into the, some of that crazy comedy that I think is very funny. Like, uh, but it's just like over the top. And um, I, I would say, certainly say that there's not a whole lot of a thematic hook to hang on to. So maybe grafting these interpretations of what the movie is really about um, is the way that people deal with that. That it doesn't have any, like, it's hard to tell what's going on underneath what's happening on screen. Yeah, I, Branded to Kill is a movie, I saw the first Criterion release, which is non-anamorphic, uh, and uh, not a not a great transfer, just because it's the early days of DVDs. Um, I saw that at the beginning of this year, and I watched it, and I was like, again, really enthusiastic, and I could tell that it was really good-looking and interesting, and I just couldn't get a hold of it. And I said, well, once I watch a bunch of Seijin Suzuki movies, I'm going to return to Branded to Kill. And then I'll be able to like form an opinion. But I'm pretty sure this movie's great and I really like it. Uh, and then I watched it this time. And like I could follow the plot like 10 minutes in. And, like, <laughs> and then past that, I had no idea what was going on. And I didn't care. And I didn't. And it was just. It was. It's stunning. It's and I, I watched like the proper Criterion release, so I like saw, you know, a really good transfer of it. And it there's the one shot uh, where it's like a rack focus past uh, like shower water uh, slash dissolve into a shot of light coming up on a woman's face. It's like this absolutely insane moment of beauty. And there's a lot of amazing set design, like that room full of the butterflies. And mm-hmm. and there's just – there's a lot of really inventive, wild, awesome stuff. And I just did not give a fuck about any of it. And I think part of it is, like, the stuff you found funny or whatever. Like, I don't find Brandon to Kill particularly funny. Uh, the stuff that's funny to me comes in at the end where um, – like the movie, to to say that you could spoil this movie is kind of irrelevant. It's not really that kind of movie. Um, it's about this hitman who is ranked, I think, number three uh, of all the hitmen in, I don't know, the world or or, or Japan. Uh, it's not really important, but he's ranked number three, and he's asked to do a job by some guy who's not professional, who's like drunk and he's like losing his shit, but he really needs the help, and um, so he takes this job and. As the the job goes, sort of, you know, he's successful, but he loses that guy in the process, and a bunch of people die. And uh, he starts to get, like, more work, but at a certain point, he becomes uh, um, neurotic about his position as a hitman. It, like, like, somebody keeps, like asking him like who's number one who's number one and then he takes this job from this crazy woman that he meets in the middle of a storm who has a has a death wish and she wants this one guy to be killed and so he takes the job even though the parameters of the job are so small that like 
he there's really not a margin of error and he gets fucked up because a butterfly lands on his um lands on his sniper rifle at the moment he's taking the shot which is just enough to put him off target and it becomes this thing where he knows the number one hitman in the world is after him and like the whole last half of the movie or like maybe the last 30 minutes of the movie is he meets the number one hitman in the world and the number one hitman in the world like just like toys with them like there's a point at which they're sitting like the number one hitman has entered his apartment and is sitting on the couch with them and they're negotiating when uh the joshishito character can go to the bathroom and stuff like that and that that kind of stuff is just like hilarious to me like the level of absurdity that the movie gets into at that point is ridiculous and uh yeah so Brandon to kill is crazy and um the, the interpretation that came to me this time again it's like if you won't say what his movie's about you can sort of you, you can imagine they're about anything and so i don't know that this is valid at all but the way i watched it now was maybe sort of an anxiety from suzuki about being um the b man like this guy that you know has to be stuck on the second bill of a double feature where he knows the studio cares about the a picture and he's the other guy and that that was the way that i followed the movie through this time i mean i again i that could be total bullshit but it does make for sort of a funny way to watch the movie yeah, I don't know like I was, I was really looking for. I like that 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 interpretation definitely occurred to me, and I was trying, but like on a moment to moment basis, I couldn't find like. So what is the rice sequel? What is this? E-? Like I just I couldn't make that meaningful. Uh, and I think this is me, this could be. I think there I, are there are movies that I find equally baffling. Um, that I also think the plots are nonsensical and meaningless and that the characters are kind of underwritten or whatever that I just love. And I think this is mm-hmm. like a sensibility thing where I just don't care for Brandon to kill. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like it's, it's just one of those, it's just one of those things with me with Sage and Suzuki in general, where I think he's very aloof. Like to me, Brandon to kill is a very aloof movie and the whole, it's like it's like he takes the whole idea of a hitman story as just being so ridiculous that why would anyone even make a straightforward hitman movie? Like why would anyone take any of this seriously? Uh, it's just it like it the, it almost I don't know like it feels like he has contempt <laughs> for genre, which is like a makes sense for a guy who for ten years had to crank out like uninspired genre movies of which I saw many uh, and, and like I saw them and I saw that they were not well written and he still had to make them. So I can understand where that contempt would come from. But as someone who does like well-made genre films, like a lot of that sort of aloofness, just, I find that unappealing. Um, I might, I might, I would, I would think of, I mean, that makes me think of people talk about, um, the Coen Brothers movies that way, sort of, in the sense that they say that, you know, a movie like Burn After Reading hates its characters. And I don't think the Coen Brothers have that, in, like, I don't think the Coen Brothers hate the characters in a movie like Burn After Reading. I think they just think, they're just exploring the characters 
absurdities. That doesn't mean they have contempt for it. So I would say that if, if you and I have a divergence of opinion on Seijin Suzuki, it's that if he is if he is so antsy at being boxed in um, that he makes a movie like Brandon to Kill, for you, I, I would it seems like you think that that is him saying, I'm above Brandon to Kill. And I don't think that he thinks of it that way, that he's just doing the thing that makes him interested in Brandon to Kill, which is not really a commentary on what Brandon to Kill might have been, but it's just where he's at. So, that, that I mean, that's generally how I would view sure. the the increasing craziness of the Suzuki movies. Yeah, for me, like, I can I can contrast Brandon to Kill with something like Detective Bureau 2-3, and I can see that he is celebrating the absurdity, and he thinks that it's, that that movie is silly, but at the same time he does the work he needs to in order for you to be invested in the characters and the story and scenes, like, to have proper amount of tension, and like, he just... That's just like a quote unquote, you know, my my uh, opinion or whatever, but like a properly made crime film. You know what I mean? Whereas like Brandon to kill, he does none of that work. He doesn't he doesn't really seem to make the effort to me for you to know why you should care about him being the number three or anything like that. Uh, and like that to me is the difference between like uh, someone who. Who is who holds the form in contempt, and someone who doesn't in in his in one filmography? Whereas, like the Cohen, the Cohen brothers may or may not hate their characters. I don't know how. I don't know why. I don't. I don't know why the discussion about the Cohen brothers to begin with is: do they hate their characters because their characters are fictional people they invented so they could tell a story? Like, I don't know why they would have that strong feelings about these people that they just invented for this one screenplay. Like, just because they write bad things happening to people doesn't mean they hate the characters. That just means that that's the kind of stories they want to tell and that's what their worldview is. Um, but, like, it's clear, regardless of how they feel about their characters, the Coen brothers love their form. Like, they love the genres they play in. They love the films that came before them. They they love the tropes and they love finding ways to – finding new takes on those tropes and when you and that's like to me that is the huge difference between something like burn after reading and something like branded to kill i mean i think when they when people at, you know when people would criticize a movie like uh burn after reading um for hating its characters i think it makes a lot of difference in terms of the tone in terms of how you interpret the movie like if the Cohen brothers hate their characters and this movie is just like a a sneer at dumb people um, then that's mean spirited, and um, you might find that to be more of a I don't know. It's like uh, I guess indulgent. It's not quite what I mean to say, but it's like it's like a snipe. It's like uh, you know, it's not as fun if it's just a snipe. But I think the Coen Brothers just find these characters amusing. I don't know that uh, it it enters their thought process whether or not they're laughing at them. But I, I and and so that would be the thing that I would apply to Suzuki. It's like um, he may not be interested in this genre anymore, but I don't think he's laughing at it. But I see, I do see what you mean in terms of, you know, um, that that you as a viewer may feel like this isn't what I signed up for. This this doesn't this this doesn't play by the rules to the point at which it stops being the thing that I 
I hope that I would get out of it. Right. And then also, like, if it was also, if it was like a bad crime movie, but a meaningful art film, like if, if I felt connected to the character's existential crisis in some way, like that would also be completely cool for me. And there are plenty of movies that ostensibly are part of a genre, but they're not like, there are horror movies that aren't actually scary, but they mm-hmm. express some other kind of anxiety and those, and I still like those and stuff like that. But like, for me, like Brandon to kill isn't that either. And I do think it is, it's not an inherent flaw of Brandon to kill. It is just a sensibility, uh, and, and preference, uh, for the record, for me, what what drives me through Branded to Kill, like, you know, I don't have to care about the meaning of him being the number three hitman. Uh, I am driven along by uh, the increasing desperation that the out of the Joe Shishido performance that he needs to know these answers or that he's struggling to deal with the fact that the number one hitman has entered his apartment and is just toying with them like they're going to go get dinner together or something because the number one hitman knows he could kill him at any time and it's it's playing with his head in a way that i find funny you know it's the same thing with the rice thing like um i mean i could i could come up with uh, a way to fit that into the notion of it being about uh, suzuki's dissatisfaction with the movies that he's making but i also just find it like his his insistence on the rice the rice thing came back again like he's still doing it like that's the thing that like that's enough for me to find it amusing um or the uh sort of it it, it feels a little bit similar to detective bureau 23 in the absurdity of his greatness as a killer when uh they show him uh there's there's like a scene where he assassinates a person by um the person is standing in a sink and he just shoots a bullet up the sink pipe into the guy's face (laughs) that kind of stuff that that's the stuff that i find entertaining about brandon to kill that's a good moment there's 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 <laughs> there's no shortage of good moments in brandon to kill for sure um i don't think either of us saw any of his post brandon to kill material I, st- I like you i started watching pistol opera uh, i got distracted i wasn't necessarily bored with it i i certainly would probably come to it with a lot more context now yeah um and I tried to, uh, you know, I went to the uh, first of the Taisho trilogy, but I was just beat and I, I passed out because that movie has a very poetic sort of vibe, which, you know, combines with the usual Suzuki looseness in terms of, you know, telling a story in a way that is like perfect sleep recipe. I mean, I'm sure it's great and I do want to see it at some point, but at the time it was not something that I could get through. So I guess that takes us to the end of our journey through Seijin Suzuki, perhaps a, a part two, uh, or maybe just another director's club episode with the proper actual hosts, uh, (laughs) could, could, uh, they could go through the career a little more thoroughly or whatever. But, um, I do believe I have fulfilled my contractual obligation. Uh, (laughs) which is, which is ultimately, is it, isn't, technically doing what you need to the most important kind of doing what you need to <laughs> doing a be, begrudgingly. No, I had a lot of fun doing this. Um, thank you, Tyler, for donating to the most likely Kickstarter. This is a very long podcast already, but uh, I did want to, you know, I remembered on the old directors club, we talked about other stuff that we had watched and I did want to shout out 
There's this movie that just went up last Friday on Netflix that I is currently my number one movie of the year. It's this incredible documentary that I really love. It's called Shirkers. It's by this um, Singaporean director named Sandy Tan. In 1992, she and her friends um, went to a film class that they did over the summer, and uh, they like she and this these other two people they sort of bonded there. And it was taught by this guy named George Cardona. And um, they made this plan that they would, they were going to college, but they would come back on their college break and they were going to shoot an independent feature film. So Sandy Tan wrote the script and she ended up starring in the movie. Um, one of her friends was uh, the cinematographer and the other one was going to edit the movie. And they sort of did all the other jobs on the movie. And so they spent a summer shooting this movie in 1992 was like they got the whole movie in the can uh george cardona said i'm going to go back to america and have the film developed and then over winter break we can edit it and he never came back and uh so 25 years later she made this movie that has the same title of the movie that she made where she's sort of going through the history that she had with her friends the experience of making the movie and the experience of having it taken away from her and i think it's just really it's it's incredibly funny it's really moving and i think it's like in terms of this ongoing current discussion about how you know the abuses of male figures with power how that impacts the art that the women that would have might have created great art you know um i think this is a really relevant piece of that discussion because at the time the movie that they shot that movie like singapore had no independent film scene and so if the movie had come out in 1992, even if it had been bad, it would be a part of history. So I think that movie's great. And then also, I was going to mention, because I know you also really loved it, is that next Tuesday, um, Blind Spotting will be available on digital, and it'll be on DVD and Blu-ray on the 20th. I feel like a lot of people miss Blind Spotting. That's my number one film of the year. Uh, I love Blind Spotting so much. I think... Uh, as much as it sucks to compare them, and I don't really mean to compare them, I do feel like Sorry to Bother You sucked all the air out of that room, and I f- wish that they had both found their place. That, the, I feel like, yeah, Blind Spotting came out in between Sorry to Bother You and Black Klansman, and I feel like those two movies had took up way more of the discourse. Um, where Blind Spotting is. Oh, God, yeah, no, there's a lot of really cool things about Blind Spotting. I I would really like to rewatch it, uh, so I'm excited for it to come out on DVD because I'm curious about uh, what a second viewing will unfold. Because it's there's a lot of choices that are very out there, and it it takes risks in ways that I found very delightful the first time I saw it, and I wonder if they would feel the same the second time. Um, in keeping with uh, the Suzuki's discussion, I mean, I think the as as I do appreciate the ambition of Sorry to Bother You. I think Sorry to Bother You is a very funny movie and a very smart movie, but I also feel like the movie is just a lot of ideas and I I think the advantage that Blind Spotting has over Sorry to Bother You is that Sorry to Bother You actually really cares about its characters and I think those characters are the reason that I enjoy Blind Spotting so much. I mean, I think Blind Spotting is a great movie about, you know, important cultural conversations but i also think blind spotting is also just really funny and lively and and 
that that's the stuff that I really like about it. Yeah, I think I think Sorry to Bother You is just it's sort of agitprop. It's just sort of it exists to sort of introduce people to the importance of unions uh, in a time when you know collective bargaining is very weak and you know uh, low wage workers have never had less power or control over their destinies and everything. Like Sorry to Bother You is just a comedy designed to like get that idea out there and energize people to go out and take action. Uh, and a lot of its failings come that from that, from the idea that it, it does that in lieu of being more complicated or more interesting or whatever else. Uh, whereas blind spotting, I do think is a little more thorny and, and challenging, uh, uh, and, yeah, I really love blind spotting. I think David Diggs is such an insane talent, and I'm I don't know if what other films he's been in, but uh, I as the lead of this film, I just adored him. Um, I'm really excited because uh, they announced that um, him and Rafael Casal, who wrote this movie and starred in it together, they're working on a new movie together. So that's that's exciting. Cool. Um, I do want to go back to Sage and Suzuki real quick. What are your top three Sage and Suzuki films? Um, let's see. I think that I would probably say, I think Youth of the Beast is pretty. Is I, I think I would probably have to go with Brandy the Kill as number one, and then I would put Youth of the Beast number two, and uh, might put Gate of Flesh or Fighting Elegy at number three. Uh, I think that. Um, like I said in the rest of the podcast, you know, Brandon to Kill is Brandon to Kill and Youth of the Beast. I feel like are a great overview of everything that I like about Suzuki, and um, Brandon to Kill is the expert version, and Youth of the Beast is sort of the beginner's version. And so those ones stand out to me. And then yeah, I, I really liked um, both Fighting Elegy and Gate of Flesh. I guess I would probably give the edge to Fighting Elegy. All right, my number three. Uh, would probably be Detective Bureau 2-3. Uh, my mm-hmm. number two would be Gate of Flesh, and my number one would be Fighting Elegy. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, even though you struggle with Suzuki, I mean, you felt like this was a filmmaker that deserved to be seen, and even if you you know, you didn't get a lot out of him, like, it was still worth taking a look. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this 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 podcast was exhausting to do. <laughs> on a regular basis and and there's a lot of reasons why I don't do this podcast anymore but it was always almost always I did not I did not appear on the Michael Haneke episode because that was not at all a fulfilling experience for me <laughs> but uh that was that was a very frustrating moment where I was just like no I get nothing out of any of this and I have nothing to say about the nothing I get out of it I just got to call out on this one um, but almost always, it's a rewarding experience that, and what you get out of it extends far beyond uh, just my knowledge of any one director. Uh, mm-hmm. So no, I had a I had a great time doing this, and I'm going to have a great time selling back those box sets that don't have money movies I like. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much, Tyler, uh, for coming on and for spending an hour with me trying to troubleshoot our uh, connection so we could record this damn thing. Yep. Um, and thank you for doing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, 
I don't have the whole spiel in front of me as far as this podcast goes where you send emails or whatever. I don't even know if th- what feed this is going to go on. This is going to go on the main director's club feed or what. Um, but if you're listening to this, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Al and Brad will be back and, uh, you know, much more prepared and generally knowledgeable than I am uh, with whatever their next episode may end up being. Uh, I think I think we we felt our way through as hit and miss as you might call Seijin Suzuki's filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We came out the other end with some opinions. Uh, and <laughs> what, what else do you want from us? Um, so uh, until next time, you know what? Not until next time. There won't be a next time. I probably will never be on this podcast again. That's funny to think about. Um, but at any rate, uh, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. All right, cool. Uh, stop this and hopefully this doesn't crash. Doko de ikite mo nagare mono. Dose sasura ihitori mino. Asu wa doko yara kaze ni kike. かわいいあの子の胸に聞けあ東京流れ物流れ果てない旅に出ていつか忘れた東京の泣いてくれるな夜の雨男命は赤く散るあ東京流れ物